Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 1 of Boyhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C.J. Hogarth. Section number one, chapters one through four. Chapter one, a slow journey. Again, two carriages stood at the front door of the house at Petrovske. In one of them sat Mimi, the two girls, and their maid, with the bailiff Yakov on the box, while in the other, a britchka, sat Woloda, myself, and our servant, Wassily. Papa, who was to follow us to Moscow in a few days was standing bareheaded on the entrance steps. He made the sign of the cross at the windows of the carriages, and said, Christ go with you. Good-bye. Yakov and our coachman, for we had our own horses, lifted their caps in answer, and also made the sign of the cross. Amen. God go with us. The carriages began to roll away, and the birch-trees of the great avenue filed out of sight. I was not in the least depressed on this occasion, for my mind was not so much turned upon what I had left, as upon what was awaiting me. In proportion as the various objects connected with the sad recollections which had recently filled my imagination receded behind me, those recollections lost their power, and gave place to a consolatory feeling of life, youthful vigour, freshness, and hope. Seldom have I spent four days more well, I will not say gaily, since I should have shrunk from appearing gay, but more agreeably and pleasantly than those occupied by our journey. No longer were my eyes confronted with the closed door of Mamma's room, which I had never been able to pass without a pang, nor with the covered piano, which nobody opened now, and at which I could never look without trembling, nor with morning dresses, we had each of us on our ordinary travelling clothes nor with all those other objects which recalled to me so vividly our irreparable loss, and forced me to abstain from any manifestation of merriment, lest I should unwittingly offend against her memory. On the contrary, a continual succession of new and exciting objects and places now caught and held my attention, and the charms of spring awakened in my soul a soothing sense of satisfaction with the present, and of blissful hope for the future. Very early next morning the merciless Wassily, who had only just entered our service and was therefore like most people in such a position zealous to a fault, came and stripped off my counterpane, affirming that it was time for me to get up, since everything was in readiness for us to continue our journey. Though I felt inclined to stretch myself and rebel, though I would gladly have spent another quarter of an hour in sweet enjoyment of my morning slumber, Wassily's inexorable face showed that he would grant me no respite, but that he was ready to tear away the counterpane twenty times more, if necessary. Accordingly I submitted myself to the inevitable, and ran down into the courtyard to wash myself at the fountain. In the coffee-room a tea-kettle was already surmounting the fire which Milka the ostler, as red in the face as a crab, was blowing with a pair of bellows. 
All was gray and misty in the courtyard like steam from a smoking dunghill, but in the eastern sky the sun was diffusing a clear, cheerful radiance, and making the straw roofs of the sheds around the courtyard sparkle with the night dew. Beneath them stood our horses, tied to mangers, and I could hear the ceaseless sound of their chewing. A curly-haired dog which had been spending the night on a dry dunghill now rose in lazy fashion, and, wagging its tail, walked slowly across the courtyard. The bustling landlady opened the creaking gates, turned her meditative cows into the street, whence came the lowing and bellowing of other cattle, and exchanged a word or two with a sleepy neighbor. Philip, with his shirt-sleeves rolled up, was working the windlass of a draw-well, and sending sparkling fresh water coursing into an oaken trough, while in the pool beneath it some early-rising ducks were taking a bath. It gave me pleasure to watch his strongly marked bearded face, and the veins and muscles as they stood out upon his great powerful hands whenever he made an extra effort. In the room behind the partition wall, where Mimi and the girls had slept, yet so near to ourselves that we had exchanged confidences overnight, movements now became audible, their maid kept passing in and out with clothes, and at last the door opened, and we were summoned to breakfast. Woloda, however, remained in a state of bustle throughout, as he ran to fetch first one article and then another, and urged the maid to hasten her preparations. The horses were put to, and showed their impatience by tinkling their bells. Parcels, trunks, dressing-cases, and boxes were replaced, and we set about taking our seats. Yet every time that we got in, the mountain of luggage in the britchka seemed to have grown larger than before, and we had much ado to understand how things had been arranged yesterday, and how we should sit now. A tea-chest, in particular, greatly inconvenienced me, but Wassily declared that things will soon right themselves, and I had no choice but to believe him. The sun was just rising, covered with dense white clouds, and every object around us was standing out in a cheerful, calm sort of radiance. The whole was beautiful to look at, and I felt comfortable and light of heart. Before us the road ran like a broad, sinuous ribbon through cornfields glittering with dew. Here and there a dark bush or young birch-tree cast a long shadow over the ruts and scattered grass-tufts of the track. Yet even the monotonous din of our carriage-wheels and collar-bells could not drown the joyous song of soaring larks, nor the combined odor of moth-eaten cloth, dust, and sourness peculiar to our britchka overpower the fresh scents of the morning. I felt in my heart that delightful impulse to be up and doing, which is a sign of sincere enjoyment. As I had not been able to say my prayers in the courtyard of the inn, but had nevertheless been assured once that on the very first day, when I omitted to perform that ceremony, some misfortune would overtake me, I now hastened to rectify the omission. Taking off my cap and stooping down in a corner of the britchka, I duly recited my orisons, and unobtrusively signed the sign of the cross beneath my coat. Yet all the while a thousand different objects were distracting my attention and more than once I inadvertently repeated a prayer twice over. Soon on the little footpath beside the road became visible some slowly moving figures. They were pilgrims. On their heads they had dirty handkerchiefs, on their backs wallets of birch-bark, and on their feet bundles of soiled rags and heavy bast shoes. Moving their staffs in regular rhythm, and scarcely throwing us a glance, they pressed onwards with heavy tread and in single file. Where have they come from, I wondered to myself, and whither are they bound? 
Is it a long pilgrimage they are making? But soon the shadows they cast on the road became indistinguishable from the shadows of the bushes which they passed. Next, a carriage and four could be seen approaching us. In two seconds the faces which looked out at us from it, with smiling curiosity, had vanished. How strange it seemed that those faces should have nothing in common with me, and that in all probability they would never meet my eyes again. Next came a pair of post-horses, with the traces looped up to their collars. On one of them a young postillion, his lamb's wool cap cocked to one side, was negligently kicking his booted legs against the flanks of his steed, as he sang a melancholy ditty. Yet his face and attitude seemed to me to express such perfect carelessness and indolent ease that I imagined it to be the height of happiness to be a postillion and to sing melancholy songs. Far off through a cutting in the road there soon stood out against the light blue sky the green roof of a village church. Presently the village itself became visible, together with the roof of the manor-house and the garden attached to it. Who lived in that house? Children, parents, teachers? Why should we not call there and make the acquaintance of its inmates? Next we overtook a file of loaded wagons, a procession to which our vehicles had to yield the road. "'What have you got in there?' asked Wassily of one wagoner who was dangling his legs lazily over the splashboard of his conveyance, and flicking his whip about as he gazed at us with a stolid, vacant look. But he only made answer when we were too far off to catch what he said. "'And what have you got?' asked Wassily of a second wagoner who was lying at full length under a new rug on the driving seat of his vehicle. The red pall and the red face beneath it lifted themselves up for a second from the folds of the rug, measured our britchka with a cold, contemptuous look, and lay down again, whereupon I concluded that the driver was wondering to himself who we were, whence we had come, and whither we were going. These various objects of interest had absorbed so much of my time that, as yet, I had paid no attention to the crooked figures on the verst posts as we passed them in rapid succession but in time the sun began to burn my head and back, the road to become increasingly dusty, the impedimenta on the carriage to grow more and more uncomfortable, and myself to feel more and more cramped. Consequently, I relapsed into devoting my whole faculties to the distance posts and their numerals, and to solving difficult mathematical problems for reckoning the time when we should arrive at the next posting-house. Twelve versts are a third of thirty-six and in all there are forty-one to lipets. We have done a third, and how much then? And so forth, and so forth. Wassily, was my next remark, on observing that he was beginning to nod on the box-seat, suppose we change seats, will you? Wassily agreed, and had no sooner stretched himself out in the body of the vehicle than he began to snore. To me on my new perch, however, a most interesting spectacle now became visible, namely our horses all of which were familiar to me down to the smallest detail. "'Why is Diachik on the right to-day, Philip, not on the left?' I asked knowingly. "'And Nurachinka is not doing her proper share of the pulling.' "'One could not put Diachik on the left,' replied Philip, altogether ignoring my last remark. "'He is not the kind of horse to put there at all. A horse like the one on the left now is the right kind of one for the job.' After this fragment of eloquence Philip turned towards Diachik, and began to do his best to worry the poor animal by jogging at the reins, in spite of the fact that Diachik was doing well and dragging the vehicle almost unaided. This Philip continued to do until he found it convenient to breathe and rest himself a while, and to settle his cap askew, 
though it had looked well enough before. I profited by the opportunity to ask him to let me have the reins to hold, until the whole six in my hand, as well as the whip, I had attained complete happiness. Several times I asked whether I was doing things right, but as usual Philip was never satisfied, and soon destroyed my felicity. The heat increased until a hand showed itself at the carriage window, and waved a bottle and a parcel of eatables. Whereupon Wassily leapt briskly from the britchka, and ran forward to get us something to eat and drink. When we arrived at a steep descent, we all got out and ran down it to a little bridge, while Wassily and Yakov followed, supporting the carriage on either side, as though to hold it up in the event of its threatening to upset. After that Mimi gave permission for a change of seats, and sometimes Woloda or myself would ride in the carriage, and Lubotshka or Katenka in the britchka. This arrangement greatly pleased the girls, since much more fun went on in the britchka. Just when the day was at its hottest we got out at a wood, and breaking off a quantity of branches, transformed our vehicle into a bower. This travelling arbour then bustled on to catch the carriage up, and had the effect of exciting Lubotshka to one of those piercing shrieks of delight which she was in the habit of occasionally emitting. At last we drew near the village where we were to halt and dine. Already we could perceive the smell of the place—the smell of smoke and tar and sheep and distinguish the sound of voices, footsteps, and carts. The bells on our horses began to ring less clearly than they had done in the open country, and on both sides the road became lined with huts, dwellings with straw roofs, carved porches, and small red or green painted shutters to the windows, through which here and there was a woman's face looking inquisitively out. Peasant children clad in smocks only stood staring open-eyed or stretching out their arms to us, ran barefooted through the dust, to climb onto the luggage behind, despite Philip's menacing gestures. Likewise, red-haired waiters came darting around the carriages, to invite us, with words and signs, to select their several hostelries as our halting-place. Presently a gate creaked, and we entered a courtyard. Four hours of rest and liberty now awaited us. CHAPTER Two, THE THUNDERSTORM the sun was sinking towards the west, and his long hot rays were burning my neck and cheeks beyond endurance, while thick clouds of dust were rising from the road and filling the whole air. Not the slightest wind was there to carry it away. I could not think what to do. Neither the dust-blackened face of Woloda, dozing in a corner, nor the motion of Philip's back, nor the long shadow of our britchka as it came bowling along behind us brought me any relief. I concentrated my whole attention upon the distance posts ahead, and the clouds which hitherto dispersed over the sky were now assuming a menacing blackness, and beginning to form themselves into a single solid mass. From time to time distant thunder could be heard, a circumstance which greatly increased my impatience to arrive at the inn where we were to spend the night. A thunderstorm always communicated to me an inexpressibly oppressive feeling of fear and gloom. Yet we were still ten versts from the next village, and in the meanwhile the large purple cloud-bank, arisen from no one knows where, was advancing steadily towards us. The sun, not yet obscured, was picking out its fuscous shape with dazzling light, and marking its front with grey stripes running right down to the horizon. At intervals vivid lightning could be seen in the distance, followed by low rumbles which increased steadily in volume until they merged into a prolonged roll 
which seemed to embrace the entire heavens. At length Wassily got up and covered over the britchka. The coachman wrapped himself up in his cloak and lifted his cap to make the sign of the cross at each successive thunderclap, and the horses pricked up their ears and snorted as though to drink in the fresh air which the flying clouds were outdistancing. The britchka began to roll more swiftly along the dusty road, and I felt uneasy, and as though the blood were coursing more quickly through my veins. Soon the clouds had veiled the face of the sun, and though he threw a last gleam of light to the dark and terrifying horizon, he had no choice but to disappear behind them. Suddenly everything around us seemed changed, and assumed a gloomy aspect. A wood of aspen-trees which we were passing seemed to be all in a tremble, with its leaves showing white against the dark lilac background of the clouds, murmuring together in an agitated manner. The tops of the larger trees began to bend to and fro, and dried leaves and grass to whirl about in eddies over the road. Swallows and white-breasted swifts came darting around the britchka, and even passing in front of the forelegs of the horses, while rooks, despite their outstretched wings, were laid as it were on their keels by the wind. Finally the leather apron which covered us began to flutter about, and to beat against the sides of the conveyance. The lightning flashed right into the britchka, as, cleaving the obscurity for a second, it lit up the grey cloth and silk galloon of the lining, and Woloda's figure pressed back into a corner. Next came a terrible sound, which, rising higher and higher and spreading further and further, increased until it reached its climax in a deafening thunderclap which made us tremble and hold our breaths. The wrath of God! What poetry there is in that simple popular conception! The pace of the vehicle was continually increasing, and from Philip's and Vasily's backs—the former was tugging furiously at the reins—I could see that they too were alarmed. Bowling rapidly down an incline, the britchka cannoned violently against a wooden bridge at the bottom. I dared not stir, and expected destruction every moment. Crack! A trace had given way, and in spite of the ceaseless, deafening thunderclaps we had to pull up on the bridge. Leaning my head despairingly against the side of the britchka, I followed with a beating heart the movements of Philip's great black fingers as he tied up the broken trace and, with hands and the butt-end of the whip, pushed the harness vigorously back into its place. My sense of terror was increasing with the violence of the thunder. Indeed, at the moment of supreme silence which generally precedes the greatest intensity of a storm, it mounted to such a height that I felt as though another quarter of an hour of this emotion would kill me. Just then there appeared from beneath the bridge a human being who, clad in a torn, filthy smock, and sported on a pair of thin shanks bare of muscles, thrust an idiotic face, a tremulous, bare, shaven head, and a pair of red shining stumps in place of hands into the britchka. "'My lord! A kopeck for—for God's sake!' groaned a feeble voice, as at each word the wretched being made the sign of the cross and bowed himself to the ground. I cannot describe the chill feeling of horror which penetrated my heart at that moment. A shudder crept through all my hair, and my eyes stared in vacant terror at the outcast. Wassily, who was charged with the apportioning of alms during the journey, was busy helping Philip, and only when everything had been put straight and Philip had resumed the reins again had he time to look for his purse. Hardly had the britchka begun to move when a blinding flash filled the welcome with a blaze of light which brought the horses to their haunches. Then the flash was followed by such an ear-splitting roar that the very vault of heaven seemed to be descending upon our heads. 
The wind blew harder than ever, and Wassily's cloak, the manes and tails of the horses, and the carriage apron were all slanted in one direction as they waved furiously in the violent blast. Presently upon the britchka's top there fell some large drops of rain. One, two, three. Then suddenly, as though a roll of drums were being beaten over our heads, the whole countryside resounded with the clatter of the deluge. From Wassily's movements I could see that he had now got his purse open, and that the poor outcast was still bowing and making the sign of the cross as he ran beside the wheels of the vehicle, at the imminent risk of being run over, and reiterated from time to time his plea, "'For, for God's sake!' At last a kopeck rolled upon the ground, and the miserable creature, his mutilated arms, with their sleeves wet through and through, held out before him, stopped perplexed in the roadway, and vanished from my sight. The heavy rain, driven before the tempestuous wind, poured down in pailfuls, and, dripping from Wassily's thick cloak, formed a series of pools on the apron. The dust became changed to a paste which clung to the wheels, and the ruts became transformed into muddy rivulets. At last, however, the lightning grew paler and more diffuse, and the thunderclaps lost some of their terror amid the monotonous rattling of the downpour. Then the rain also abated, and the clouds began to disperse. In the region of the sun a lightness appeared, and between the white-gray clouds could be caught glimpses of an azure sky. Finally a dazzling ray shot across the pools on the road, shot through the threads of rain, now falling thin and straight as from a sieve and fell upon the fresh leaves and blades of grass. The great cloud was still lowering black and threatening on the far horizon, but I no longer felt afraid of it. I felt only an inexpressibly pleasant hopefulness in proportion, as trust in life replaced the late burden of fear. Indeed my heart was smiling like that of refreshed, revivified nature herself. Wassily took off his cloak and wrung the water from it. Woloda flung back the apron, and I stood up in the britchka to drink in the new, fresh, balm-laden air. In front of us was the carriage, rolling along and looking as wet and resplendent in the sunlight as though it had just been polished. On one side of the road boundless oat-fields, intersected in places by small ravines which now showed bright with their moist earth and greenery, stretched to the far horizon like a checkered carpet while on the other side of us an aspen wood, intermingled with hazel bushes, and parquet with wild thyme in joyous profusion, no longer rustled and trembled, but slowly dropped rich, sparkling diamonds from its newly bathed branches on to the withered leaves of last year. From above us, from every side, came the happy songs of little birds calling to one another among the dripping brushwood, while clear from the inmost depths of the wood sounded the voice of the cuckoo. So delicious was the wondrous scent of the wood, the scent which follows a thunderstorm in spring, the scent of birch-trees, violets, mushrooms, and thyme, that I could no longer remain in the britchka. Jumping out, I ran to some bushes, and, regardless of the showers of drops discharged upon me, tore off a few sprigs of thyme, and buried my face in them to smell their glorious scent. Then, despite the mud which had got into my boots, as also the fact that my stockings were soaked, I went skipping through the puddles to the window of the carriage. "'Lubachka! Katenka!' I shouted as I handed them some of the thyme. "'Just look how delicious this is!' The girl smelt it, and cried, "'Ah!' But Mimi shrieked to me to go away, for fear I should be run over by the wheels. "'Oh, but smell how delicious it is!' I persisted. 
Chapter Three: A New Point of View. Katenka was with me in the britchka. Her lovely head inclined as she gazed pensively at the roadway. I looked at her in silence and wondered what had brought the unchildlike expression of sadness to her face, which I now observed for the first time there. We shall soon be in Moscow, I said at last. How large do you suppose it is? I don't know, she replied. Well, but how large do you imagine? As large as Serpikov? What do you say? Nothing. Yet the instinctive feeling which enables one person to guess the thoughts of another and serves as a guiding thread in conversation soon made Katenka feel that her indifference was disagreeable to me. Wherefore she raised her head presently, and turning round, said, Did your papa tell you that we girls, too, were going to live at your grandmamma's? Yes, he said that we should all live there. All live there? Yes, of course. We shall have one half of the upper floor, and you the other half, and papa the wing, but we shall all of us dine together with grandmamma downstairs. But mamma says that your grandmamma is so very grave and easily made angry. No, she only seems like that at first. She is grave, but not bad-tempered. On the contrary, she is both kind and cheerful. If you could only have seen the ball at her house. All the same, I am afraid of her. Besides, who knows whether we— Katenka stopped short, and once again became thoughtful. What? I asked with some anxiety. Nothing. I only said that— No, you said, who knows whether we— And you said, didn't you, that once there was ever such a ball at Grandmamma's? Yes. It is a pity you were not there. There were heaps of guests, about a thousand people, and all of them princes or generals, and there was music, and I danced. But Katenka, I broke off, you are not listening to me. Oh, yes, I am listening. You said that you danced? Why are you so serious? Well, one cannot always be gay. But you have changed tremendously since Woloda and I first went to Moscow. Tell me the truth now. Why are you so odd? My tone was resolute. Am I so odd? said Katenka, with an animation which showed me that my question had interested her. I don't see that I am so at all. Well, you are not the same as you were before, I continued. Once upon a time any one could see that you were our equal in everything, and that you loved us like relations, just as we did you, but now you are always serious and keep yourself apart from us. Oh, not at all! But let me finish, please, I interrupted, already conscious of a slight tickling in my nose, the precursor of the tears which usually came to my eyes whenever I had to vent any long pent-up feeling. You avoid us, and talk to no one but Mimi, as though you had no wish for our further acquaintance. But one cannot always remain the same. One must change a little sometimes, replied Katenka, who had an inveterate habit of pleading some such fatalistic necessity whenever she did not know what else to say. I recollect that once when, having a quarrel with Lubotshka, who had called her a stupid girl, she, Katenka, retorted that everybody could not be wise, seeing that a certain number of stupid people was a necessity in the world. However, on the present occasion I was not satisfied that any such inevitable necessity for changing sometimes existed, and asked further. Why is it necessary? Well, you see, we may not always go on living together as we are doing now, 
said Katenka, colouring slightly and regarding Philip's back with a grave expression on her face. "'My mamma was able to live with your mother because she was her friend. But will a similar arrangement always suit the Countess, who they say is so easily offended? Besides, in any case, we shall have to separate some day. You are rich. You have Petrovsky. While we are poor, mamma has nothing. You are rich. We are poor. Both the words and the ideas which they connoted seemed to me extremely strange. Hitherto I had conceived that only beggars and peasants were poor, and could not reconcile in my mind the idea of poverty and the graceful charming Katenka. I felt that Mimi and her daughter ought to live with us always, and to share everything that we possessed. Things ought never to be otherwise. Yet at this moment a thousand new thoughts with regard to their lonely position came crowding into my head, and I felt so remorseful at the notion that we were rich and they poor, that I coloured up and could not look Katenka in the face. Yet what does it matter, I thought, that we are well off and they are not? Why should that necessitate a separation? Why should we not share in common what we possess? Yet I had a feeling that I could not talk to Katenka on the subject, since a certain practical instinct, opposed to all logical reasoning, warned me that, right though she possibly was, I should do wrong to tell her so. It is impossible that you should leave us. How could we ever live apart? Yet what else is there to be done? Certainly I do not want to do it. Yet, if it has to be done, I know what my plan in life will be. Yes, to become an actress. How absurd! I exclaimed, for I knew that to enter that profession had always been her favorite dream. Oh, no! I only used to say that when I was a little girl. Well, then, what? To go into a convent and live there, then I could walk out in a black dress and velvet cap," cried Katenka. Has it ever befallen you, my readers, to become suddenly aware that your conception of things has altered? As though every object in life had unexpectedly turned aside towards you of which you had hitherto remained unaware? Such a species of moral change occurred, as regards myself, during this journey, and therefore from it I date the beginning of my boyhood. For the first time in my life I then envisaged the idea that we, in other words our family, were not the only persons in the world, that not every conceivable interest was centred in ourselves, and that there existed numbers of people who had nothing in common with us, cared nothing for us, and even knew nothing of our existence. No doubt I had known all this before, only I had not known it then as I knew it now. I had never properly felt or understood it. Thought merges into conviction through paths of its own, as well as, sometimes, with great suddenness and by methods wholly different from those which have brought other intellects to the same conclusion. For me the conversation with Katenka, striking deeply as it did, and forcing me to reflect on her future position, constituted such a path. As I gazed at the towns and villages through which we passed, and in each house of which lived at least one family like our own, as well as at the women and children who stared with curiosity at our carriages, and then became lost to sight for ever, and the peasants and workmen who did not even look at us, much less make us any obeisance, the question arose for the first time in my thoughts, whom else do they care for if not for us? And this question was followed by others, such as, to what end do they live? How do they educate their children? Do they teach their children and let them play? 
What are their names? And so forth. CHAPTER Four. IN MOSCOW From the time of our arrival in Moscow, the change in my conception of objects, of persons, and of my connection with them became increasingly perceptible. When at my first meeting with Grandmamma I saw her thin wrinkled face and faded eyes, the mingled respect and fear with which she had hitherto inspired me, gave place to compassion, and when, laying her cheek against Lubotshka's head, she sobbed as though she saw before her the corpse of her beloved daughter, my compassion grew to love. I felt deeply sorry to see her grief at our meeting, even though I knew that in ourselves we represented nothing in her eyes, but were dear to her only as reminders of our mother, that every kiss which she imprinted upon my cheeks expressed the one thought, she is no more, she is dead, and I shall never see her again. Papa, who took little notice of us here in Moscow, and whose face was perpetually preoccupied on the rare occasions when he came in his black dress-coat to take formal dinner with us, lost much in my eyes at this period, in spite of his turned-up ruffles, robes de chambre, overseers, bailiffs, expeditions to the estate, and hunting exploits. Karl Ivanitch, whom Grandmamma always called uncle, and who, heaven knows why, had taken it into his head to adorn the bald pate of my childhood's days with a red wig parted in the middle, now looked to me so strange and ridiculous that I wondered how I could ever have failed to observe the fact before. Even between the girls and ourselves there seemed to have sprung up an invisible barrier. They, too, began to have secrets among themselves, as well as to evince a desire to show off their ever-lengthening skirts even as we boys did our trousers and ankle-straps. As for Mimi, she appeared at luncheon the first Sunday, in such a gorgeous dress and with so many ribbons in her cap, that it was clear that we were no longer on Campania, and that everything was now going to be different. End of section one. Recording by Bill Borst. Section number two of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section number two, chapters five through eight. Chapter five, my elder brother. I was only a year and some odd months younger than Woloda, and from the first we had grown up and studied and played together. Hitherto the difference between elder and younger brother had never been felt between us. But at the period of which I am speaking, I began to have a notion that I was not Woloda's equal either in years, in tastes, or in capabilities. I even began to fancy that Woloda himself was aware of his superiority, and that he was proud of it. And, though perhaps I was wrong, the idea wounded my conceit, already suffering from frequent comparison with him. He was my superior in everything—in games, in studies, in quarrels, and in deportment. All this brought about an estrangement between us, and occasioned me moral sufferings which I had never hitherto experienced. When for the first time Woloda wore Dutch-pleated shirts, I at once said that I was greatly put out at not being given similar ones, and each time that he arranged his collar I felt that he was doing so on purpose to offend me, 
But what tormented me most of all was the idea that Woloda could see through me, yet did not choose to show it. Who has not known those secret wordless communications which spring from some barely perceptible smile or movement, from a casual glance between two persons who live as constantly together as do brothers, friends, man and wife, or master and servant, particularly if those two persons do not in all things cultivate mutual frankness? How many half-expressed wishes, thoughts, and meanings, which one shrinks from revealing, are made plain by a single accidental glance, which timidly and irresolutely meets the eye? However, in my own case I may have been deceived by my excessive capacity for and love of analysis. Possibly Woloda did not feel at all as I did. Passionate and frank, but unstable in his likings, he was attracted by the most diverse things, and always surrendered himself wholly to such attraction. For instance, he suddenly conceived a passion for pictures, spent all his money on their purchase, begged papa, grandmamma, and his drawing-master to add to their number, and applied himself with enthusiasm to art. Next came a sudden rage for curios, with which he covered his table, and for which he ransacked the whole house. Following upon that he took to violent novel-reading, procuring such works by stealth, and devouring them day and night. Involuntarily I was influenced by his whims, for, though too proud to imitate him, I was also too young and too lacking in independence to choose my own way. Above all, I envied Woloda his happy, nobly frank character, which showed itself most strikingly when we quarrelled. I always felt that he was in the right, yet could not imitate him. For instance, on one occasion when his passion for curios was at its height, I went to his table and accidentally broke an empty, many-coloured smelling-bottle. "'Who gave you leave to touch my things?' asked Woloda, chancing to enter the room at that moment, and at once perceiving the disorder which I had occasioned in the orderly arrangement of the treasures on his table. "'And where is that smelling-bottle? Perhaps you—' I let it fall, and it smashed to pieces. But what does that matter? Well, please do me the favour never to dare to touch my things again," he said, as he gathered up the broken fragments and looked at them vexedly. And will you please do me the favour never to order me to do anything whatever? I retorted. When a thing's broken, it's broken, and there is no more to be said. Then I smiled, though I hardly felt like smiling. Oh, it may mean nothing to you, but to me it means a good deal," said Woloda, shrugging his shoulders, a habit he had caught from papa. First of all, you go and break my things, and then you laugh. What a nuisance a little boy can be!" Little boy, indeed! Then you, I suppose, are a man, and ever so wise. I do not intend to quarrel with you, said Woloda, giving me a slight push. Go away! Don't you push me! Go away! I say again, don't you push me!" Woloda took me by the hand and tried to drag me away from the table, but I was excited to the last degree, and gave the table such a push with my foot that I upset the whole concern, and brought china and crystal ornaments and everything else with a crash to the floor. "'You disgusting little brute!' exclaimed Woloda, trying to save some of his falling treasures. At last all is over between us, I thought to myself, as I strode from the room, 
we are separated now for ever. It was not until evening that we again exchanged a word. Yet I felt guilty, and was afraid to look at him, and remained at a loose end all day. Woloda, on the contrary, did his lessons as diligently as ever, and passed the time after luncheon in talking and laughing with the girls. As soon again as afternoon lessons were over I left the room, for it would have been terribly embarrassing for me to be alone with my brother. When, too, the evening class in history was ended, I took my notebook and moved towards the door. Just as I passed Woloda, I pouted and pulled an angry face, though in reality I should have liked to make my peace with him. At the same moment he lifted his head, and with a barely perceptible and good-humouredly satirical smile looked me full in the face. Our eyes met, and I saw that he understood me, while he for his part saw that I knew that he understood me. Yet a feeling stronger than myself obliged me to turn away from him. Nikolinka, he said in a perfectly simple and anything but mocking pathetic way, you have been angry with me long enough. I am sorry if I offended you, and he tendered me his hand. It was as though something welled up from my heart and nearly choked me. Presently it passed away. The tears rushed to my eyes, and I felt immensely relieved. I too am so sorry, Woloda, I said, taking his hand. Yet he only looked at me with an expression as though he could not understand why there should be tears in my eyes. CHAPTER Six, MASHA None of the changes produced in my conception of things were so striking as the one which led me to cease to see in one of our chambermaids a mere servant of the female sex, but on the contrary a woman, upon whom depended to a certain extent my peace of mind and happiness. From the time of my earliest recollection I can remember Masha an inmate of our house, yet never until the occurrence of which I am going to speak, an occurrence which entirely altered my impression of her, had I bestowed the smallest attention upon her. She was twenty-five years old, while I was but fourteen. Also she was very beautiful, but I hesitate to give a further description of her, lest my imagination should once more picture the bewitching though deceptive conception of her which filled my mind during the period of my passion. To be frank, I will only say that she was extraordinarily handsome, magnificently developed, and a woman, as also that I was but fourteen. At one of those moments when, lesson-book in hand, I would pace the room and try to keep strictly to one particular crack in the floor as I hummed a fragment of some tune or repeated some vague formula, in short, at one of those moments when the mind leaves off thinking and the imagination gains the upper hand, and yearns for new impressions, I left the schoolroom, and turned, with no definite purpose in view, towards the head of the staircase. Somebody in slippers was ascending the second flight of stairs. Of course I felt curious to see who it was, but the footsteps ceased abruptly, and then I heard Masha's voice say, "'Go away! What nonsense! What would Maria—' Ivanova think if she were to come now. "'Oh, but she will not come,' answered Woloda's voice in a whisper. "'Well, go away, you silly boy,' and Masha came running up and fled past me. I cannot describe the way in which this discovery confounded me. Nevertheless, the feeling of amazement soon gave place to a kind of sympathy with Woloda's conduct, 
I found myself wondering less at the conduct itself than at his ability to behave so agreeably. Also I found myself involuntarily desiring to imitate him. Sometimes I would pace the landing for an hour at a time, with no other thought in my head than to watch for movements from above. Yet although I longed beyond all things to do as Woloda had done, I could not bring myself to the point. At other times, filled with a sense of envious jealousy, I would conceal myself behind a door, and listen to the sounds which came from the maid-servant's room, until the thought would occur to my mind, How if I were to go in now and, like Woloda, kiss Masha? What should I say when she asked me, me with the huge nose and the tuft on the top of my head, what I wanted? Sometimes, too, I could hear her saying to Woloda, That serves you right. Go away. Nicholas Petrovitch never comes in here with such nonsense. Alas! she did not know that Nicholas Petrovitch was sitting on the staircase just below and feeling that he would give all he possessed to be in that bold fellow Woloda's place. I was shy by nature, and rendered worse in that respect by a consciousness of my own ugliness. I am certain that nothing so much influences the development of a man as his exterior, though the exterior itself less than his belief in its plainness or beauty. Yet I was too conceited altogether to resign myself to my fate. I tried to comfort myself much as the fox did when he declared that the grapes were sour. That is to say, I tried to make light of the satisfaction to be gained from making such use of a pleasing exterior as I believed Woloda to employ, satisfaction which I nevertheless envied him from my heart, and endeavoured with every faculty of my intellect and imagination to console myself with a pride in my isolation. CHAPTER Seven, SMALL SHOT "'Good gracious! Powder!' exclaimed Mimi, in a voice trembling with alarm. "'Whatever are you doing? You will set the house on fire in a moment, and be the death of us all!' Upon that, with an indescribable expression of firmness, Mimi ordered every one to stand aside, and, regardless of all possible danger from a premature explosion, strode with long and resolute steps to where some small shot was scattered about the floor, and began to trample upon it. When, in her opinion, the peril was at least lessened, she called for Michael and commanded him to throw the powder away into some remote spot, or better still, to immerse it in water, after which she adjusted her cap and returned proudly to the drawing-room, murmuring as she went, "'At least I can say that they are well looked after.' When Papa issued from his room and took us to see Grandmamma, we found Mimi sitting by the window and glancing with a grave, mysterious, official expression towards the door. In her hand she was holding something carefully wrapped in paper. I guessed that that something was the small shot, and that Grandmamma had been informed of the occurrence. In the room also were the maid-servant, Gasha, who, to judge by her angry, flushed face, was in a state of great irritation and Dr. Blumenthal, the latter a little man pitted with smallpox, who was endeavouring by tacit pacificatory signs with his head and eyes to reassure the perturbed Gasha. Grandmamma was sitting a little askew and playing that variety of patience which is called the traveller, two unmistakable signs of her displeasure. "'How are you to-day, Mamma?' said Papa, as he kissed her hand respectfully. "'Have you had a good night?' 
"'Yes, very good, my dear. You know that I always enjoy sound health,' replied Grandmamma, in a tone implying that Papa's inquiries were out of place and highly offensive. "'Please give me a clean pocket-handkerchief,' she added to Gasha. "'I have given you one, madam,' answered Gasha, pointing to the snow-white cambric handkerchief which she had just laid on the arm of Grandmamma's chair. "'No, it's a nasty, dirty thing. Take it away and bring me a clean one, my dear.' Gasha went to a cupboard and slammed the door of it back so violently that every window rattled. Grandmamma glared angrily at each of us, and then turned her attention to following the movements of the servant. After the latter had presented her with what I suspected to be the same handkerchief as before, Grandmamma continued, "'And when do you mean to cut me some snuff, my dear?' "'When I have time.' "'What do you say?' "'Today.' If you don't want to continue in my service, you had better say so at once. I would have sent you away long ago had I known that you wished it." "'It wouldn't have broken my heart if you had,' muttered the woman, in an undertone. Here the doctor winked at her again, but she returned his gaze so firmly and wrathfully that he soon lowered it and went on playing with his watch-key. "'You see, my dear, how people speak to me in my own house,' said Grandmamma to Papa when Gasha had left the room grumbling. "'Well, Mamma, I will cut you some snuff myself,' replied Papa, though evidently at a loss how to proceed now that he had made this rash promise. "'No, no, I thank you. Probably she is cross because she knows that no one except herself can cut the snuff just as I like it. "'Do you know, my dear,' she went on after a pause, "'that your children very nearly set the house on fire this morning?' Papa gazed at Grandmamma with respectful astonishment. "'Yes, they were playing with something or another. Tell him the story,' she added to Mimi. Papa could not help smiling as he took the shot in his hand. "'This is only small shot, Mamma,' he remarked, "'and could never be dangerous. I thank you, my dear, for your instruction, but I am rather too old for that sort of thing.' "'Nerves, nerves!' whispered the doctor. Papa turned to us, and asked us where we had got the stuff, and how we could dare to play with it. "'Don't ask them. Ask that useless uncle, rather,' put in Grandmamma, laying a peculiar stress upon the word uncle. "'What else is he for?' Woloda says that Karl Ivanitch gave him the powder himself,' declared Mimi. "'Then you can see for yourself what use he is,' continued Grandmamma. And where is he, this precious uncle? How is one to get hold of him? Send him here." "'He has gone on an errand for me,' said Papa. "'That is not at all right,' rejoined Grandmamma. "'He ought to always be here. True, the children are yours, not mine, and I have nothing to do with them, seeing that you are so much cleverer than I am. Yet all the same I think it is time we had a regular tutor for them, and not this uncle of a German a stupid fellow who knows only how to teach them rude manners and Tyrolean songs. Is it necessary, I ask you, that they should learn Tyrolean songs? However, there is no one for me to consult about it, and you must do just as you like." The word now meant, now that they have no mother, and suddenly awakened sad recollections in Grandmamma's heart. She threw a glance at the snuff-box bearing Mamma's portrait and sighed. "'I thought of all this long ago,' said Papa eagerly, "'as well as taking your advice on the subject. 
How would you like St. Jerome to superintend their lessons?' "'Oh, I think he would do excellently, my friend,' said Grandmamma, in a mollified tone. "'He is at least a tutor comme il faut, and knows how to instruct des enfants de bonne maison. He is not a mere uncle who is good only for taking them out walking.' "'Very well. I will talk to him to-morrow,' said Papa. And sure enough, two days later, saw Karl Ivanitch forced to retire in favour of the young Frenchman referred to. CHAPTER Eight. Karl Ivanitch's History The evening before the day when Karl was to leave us for ever, he was standing, clad as usual in his wadded dressing-gown and red cap, near the bed in his room, and bending down over a trunk as he carefully packed his belongings. His behaviour towards us had been very cool of late, and he had seemed to shrink from all contact with us. Consequently, when I entered his room on the present occasion, he only glanced at me for a second, and then went on with his occupation. Even though I proceeded to jump on to his bed, a thing hitherto always forbidden me to do, he said not a word, and the idea that he would soon be scolding or forgiving us no longer, no longer having anything to do with us, reminded me vividly of the impending separation. I felt grieved to think that he had ceased to love us, and wanted to show him my grief. "'Will you let me help you?' I said, approaching him. He looked at me for a moment and turned away again, yet the expression of pain in his eyes showed that his coldness was not the result of indifference, but rather of sincere and concentrated sorrow. "'God sees and knows everything,' he said at length, raising himself to his full height and drawing a deep sigh. "'Yes, Nikolinka,' he went on, observing, the expression of sincere pity on my face, my fate has been an unhappy one from the cradle, and will continue so to the grave. The good that I have done to people has always been repaid with evil. Yet though I shall receive no reward here, I shall find one there." He pointed upwards. "'Ah, if only you knew my whole story, and all that I have endured in this life! I, who have been a bootmaker, a soldier, a deserter, a factory hand, and a teacher! Yet now, now I am nothing! and, like the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head." Sitting down upon a chair, he covered his eyes with his hand. Seeing that he was in the introspective mood in which a man pays no attention to his listener as he cons over his secret thoughts, I remained silent, and, seating myself upon the bed, continued to watch his kind face. "'You are no longer a child. You can understand things now, and I will tell you my whole story, and all that I have undergone. Some day, my children, you may remember the old friend who loved you so much." He leant his elbow upon the table by his side, took a pinch of snuff, and in the peculiarly measured, guttural tone in which he used to dictate us our lessons, began the story of his career. Since he many times in later years repeated the whole to me again, always in the same order, and with the same expressions and the same unvarying intonation, I will try to render it literally and without omitting the innumerable grammatical errors into which he always strayed when speaking in Russian. Whether it was really the history of his life, or whether it was the mere product of his imagination—that is to say, some narrative which he had conceived during his lonely residence in our house, and had at last, from endless repetition, come to believe in himself, or whether he was adorning with imaginary facts the true record of his career, I have never quite been able to make out. On the one hand, 
there was too much depth of feeling and practical consistency in its recital for it to be wholly incredible while on the other hand the abundance of poetical beauty which it contained tended to raise doubts in the mind of the listener me were very unhappy from the time of my birth he began with a profound sigh the noble blood of the countess of Zomerblatt flows in my veins me were born six week after the vetting the man of my mother i called him papa were farmer to the count von Zomerblatt. he could not forget my mother's shame and loved me not i had a youngster brother johann and two sister put me very strange between my own family when johann made several silly trick papa said with this child karl i am never to have one moment tranquil and then he scolded and punished me when the sister quarrelled among themselves papa said karl will never be one obedient boy and still scolded and punished me my good mamma alone loved and tenderate me often she said to me karl come in my room and there she kissed me secretly poorly poorly karl she said nobody love you but i will not exchange you for somebody in the world one thing your mother pegs you to remember she said to me learn well and be ever one honest man then god will not forsake you and i tried so to become when my fourteen year had expired and me could partake of the holy supper my mother said to my father karl is one big boy now gustav what shall we do with him and papa said me don't know then mamma said let us give him to town at mr schultzen's and he may be shoemaker and my vater said good six year and seven months lived i in town with the mr shoemaker and he loved me he said karl are one good workman and shall soon become my jesel but man makes the proposition and god the deposition in the year seventeen ninety six one conscription took place and each which was serviceable from the eighteenth to the twenty-first year had to go to town my father and my brother johann come to town and we go together to throw the lot for which should be soldat johann drew the veto number and me was not necessary to be soldat and papa said i have only one son and with him i must now separate then i take his hand and says why you say so papa come with me and i will say you something and papa come and we sit together at the public's house and me said waiter give us one beer cug and he gives us one we drink all together and brother johann also drink papa said me don't say that you have only one son and 
with it you must separate my heart was breaking when you say this brother johann must not serve me shall be soldat karl is for nobody necessary and karl shall be soldat you is one honest man karl said papa and kissed me and me was soldat End of section two. Recording by Bill Borst. Section three of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three. Chapters nine through twelve. Chapter nine. Continuation of Karl's narrative. That was a terrible time, Nikolinka continued Karl Ivanitch. The time of Napoleon. He wanted to conquer Germany, and we protected our Vaterland to the last trap of plot. Me were at Ulm, me were at Austerlitz, me were at Wagram. Did you really fight? I asked with a gaze of astonishment. Did you really kill anybody? Karl instantly reassured me on this point. Once one French grenadier was left behind, and fell to the ground. I sprang forwards with my gun, and were about to kill him. Aber der Franzose wort sein Gewehr hin und rief. Pardon. And I let him loose. At Wagram, Napoleon cut us open, and surrounded us in such a way as there was no helping. Three days had we no provisions and stood in the water up to the knees. The evil Napoleon neither let us go loose nor catched us. On the fourth day they took us prisoners, thank God, and sent us to one fortress. Upon me was one blue trousers, uniforms of very good clothes, fifteen of tallers, and one silver clock which my vater had given me. The France soldaten took from me everything. For my happiness there was three ducats on me, which my mamma had sewn in my shirt of flannel. Nobody found them. I liked not long to stay in the fortresses, and resoluted to run away. One day, one pig holiday, says I to the sergeant which had to look after us, Mr. Sergeant, Today is a pig holiday, and me wants to celebrate it. Bring here, if you please, two bottle Matera, and we shall drink them with each other. And the sergeant says, Goot. When the sergeant bring the Matera, and we drink it out to the last drop, I take his hand, and says, Mr. Sergeant, perhaps you have still one water and one mutter? He says, so I have, Mr. Mayor. My water and mutter not seen me eight year. I goes on to him, and say no not if I am yet alive or if my bones be reposing in the grave. Oh, Mr. Sergeant, I have two tuckets, which is in my shirt of flannel. Take them, and let me loose. You will be my benefactor, and my mutter will be praying for you all her life to the Almighty God. The sergeant emptied his glass of Matera, and says, 
Mr. Mayor, I love and pity you very much, but you is one prisoner, and I one soldier. So I take his hand, and says, Mr. Sergeant, and the sergeant says, You is one poor man, and I will not take your money, but I will help you. Then I go to sleep, buy one pail of pranti for de soldaten, and they will sleep. Me will not look after you. This was one good man. I put the pail of pranti, and when the soldaten was drunken, me dressed in one old coat, and gang in silence out of the dune. I go to the wall, and will leap down, but there is water below, and I will not spoil my last dressing, so I go to the gate. The sentry go up and down with one gun, and look at me. Who goes there? And I was silent. Who goes there the second time? And I was silent. Who goes there the third time? And I run away. I sprang in the water, climb up to the other side, and walk on. The entire night I run on the way, but when daylight came I was afraid that they would catch me, and I hit myself in the high corn. There I kneeled down, zanked the water in heaven for my safety, and fall asleep with a tranquil feeling. I wakened up in the evening, and gang further. At once one large German carriage, with two raven-black horse, came alongside me. In the carriage sit one well-dressed man, smoking pipe, and look at me. I go slowly, so that the carriage shall have time to pass me, but I go slowly, and the carriage go slowly, and the man look at me. I go quick, and the carriage go quick, and the man stop its two horses, and look at me. Young man, says he, where go you so late? I says, I go to Frankfort. Sit in the carriage, there is room enough, and I will track you, he says. But why have you nosing about you? Your boots is dirty, and your beard not shaven? I seated with him, and says, Ich bin one poor man, and I would like to pussy myself with something in a manufactory. My dressing is dirty because I fell in the mud on the road. You tell me untruths, young man, says he. The road is quite dry now. I was silent. Tell me the whole truth, goes on the good man, who you are and where you go to. I like your face, and when you is one honest man, so I will help you. And I tell all. Good, young man, he says, come to my manufactory of rope, and I will give you work and dress and money, and you can live with us. I says, good. I go to the manufactory of rope, and the good man says to his woman, Here is one young man who defended his vaterland, and ran away from prisons. He has not house, nor tresses, nor preet. He will live with us. Give him clean linen, and nourish him. I lived one and a half year in the manufactory of rope, and my landlord loved me so much that he would not let me loose, and I felt very good. I was then handsome man, young, of pig stature, with blue eyes and Romish nose, and Mrs. L. I like not to say her name, she was a woman of my landlord, was young and handsome lady, and she fell in love with me. Here Carl 
Ivanitch made a long pause, lowered his kindly blue eyes, shook his head quietly, and smiled as people always do under the influence of a pleasing recollection. Yes, he resumed as he leant back in his armchair and adjusted his dressing gown. I have experienced many things in my life, but there is my witness. Here he pointed to an image of the Saviour, embroidered on wool, which was hanging over his bed, that nobody in the world can say that Karl Ivanitch has been one dishonest man. I would not repay black ingratitude for the good which Mr. L. did me, and I resoluted to run away. So in the evening, when all were asleep, I writed one letter to my landlord, and laid it on the table in his room. Then I taked my tresses, three taller of money, and go mysteriously into the street. Nobody have seen me, and I go on the road. CHAPTER Ten, CONCLUSION OF CARL'S NARRATIVE I had not seen my mamma for nine year, and I know not whether she lived or whether her bones had long since lain in the dark grave. Then I come to my own country and go to the town, I ask, where live Kustaf Mayer, who was farmer to the Count von Zomerblatt? And they answer me, Graf Zomerblatt is dead, and Gustav Mayer live now in the pig street, and keep a public house. So I dress in my new waistcoat, and one noble coat which the manufacturist presented me, arranged my hairs nice, and go to the public house of my papa. Sister Marishan was sitting on a bench, and she asked me what I want. I says, might I drink one glass of brandy? And she says, Vater, here is a young man who wished to drink one glass of brandy. And Papa says, Give him the glass. I set to the table, drink my glass of brandy, smoke my pipe, and look at Papa, Marishen, and Johann, who also come into the shop. In the conversation, Papa says, You know perhaps, young man, where stands our army? And I say, I myself am come from the army, and it stands now at Rouen. Our son, says Papa, is a soldat, and now is it nine years since he wrote never one word, and we know not whether he is alive or dead. My woman cry continually for him. I still fumigate the pipe, and say, What was your son's name, and where served he? Perhaps I may know him. His name was Karl Mayer, and he served in the Austrian Jagers. He were a pig stature, and a handsome man like yourself," puts in Marishan. I say, I know your Karl. Amalia, exclaimed my vater, come here. Here is young man, which knows our Karl, and my dear mutter comes out from a back door. I knew her directly. You know our Karl, says she, and looks at me, and white all over trembles. Yes, I have seen him, I says, without the courage to look at her, for my heart did almost burst. My Karl is alive, she cry. Then thank God. Where is he, my Karl? I would die in peace if I could see him once more, my darling son. But God will not have it so. Then she cried, and I could no longer stand it. Darling mamma, I say, I am your son. I am your Karl. And she fell into my arms. Karl Ivanitch covered his eyes, and his lips were quivering. Mutter, sagte ich, ich bin ihr son. Ich bin ihr Karl. 
und sie stürzte mir in die Arme. He repeated, recovering a little, and wiping the tears from his eyes. But Gott did not wish me to finish my days in my own town. I were pursued by fate. I lived in my own town only three months. One Sunday I sit in a coffee-house, and trink it one pint of beer, and fumigated my pipe, and speak it with some friends of politic, of the Emperor Franz, of Napoleon, of the war, and anybody might say his opinion. But next to us sits a strange gentleman, in a grey uberak, who drink coffee, fumigate the pipe, and says nothing. When the night watchman shouted ten o'clock, I take my hat, paid the money, and go home. At the middle of the night some one knock at the door. I rise and says, Who is there? Open, says some one. I shout again, First say who is there, and I will open. Open in the name of the law, say some one behind the door. I now do so. Two soldaten with guns stand at the door, and into the room steps the man in the grey uberak, who had sat with us in the coffee-house. He were spyin'. Come with me, says the spyin'. Very good, I say. I dressed myself in boots, trousers, and coat, and go through the room. When I come to the wall where my gun hangs, I take it, and says, You are a spyin', so defend you. I give one stroke left, one right, and one on the head. The spyin' lay precipitated on the floor. Then I taked my cloak-bag and money, and jumped out of the window. I went to Ems, where I was acquainted with one General Sassin, who loved me, gave me a passport from the embassy, and take me to Rusland to learn his children. When General Sassin died, your mamma called for me, and says, Karl Ivanitch, I give you my children, love them, and I will never leave you, and will take care of your old age. Now she is dead, and all is forgotten. For my twenty year full of service, I must now go into the street, and seek for a dry crust of bread for my old age. God sees all this, and knows all this. His holy will be done. Only, only, I yearn for you, my children. And Karl drew me to him, and kissed me on the forehead. CHAPTER Eleven, ONE MARK ONLY the year of mourning over, Grandmamma recovered a little from her grief, and once more took to receiving occasional guests, especially children of the same age as ourselves. On the 13th of December, Lubotshka's birthday, the Princess Kornikoff and her daughters, with Madame Velakin, Stonechka, Ilinka Grap, and the two younger twins, arrived at our house before luncheon. Though we could hear the sounds of talking, laughter, and movements going on in the drawing-room, we could not join the party until our morning lessons were finished. The table of studies in the schoolroom said, Lundi, de deux à trois maîtres d'histoire et de géographie. And this infernal maître d'histoire we must await, listen to, and see the back of before we could gain our liberty. Already it was twenty minutes past two, and nothing was to be heard of the tutor, nor yet anything to be seen of him in the street although I kept looking up and down it with the greatest impatience, and with an emphatic longing never to see the maître again. "'I believe he is not coming to-day,' said Woloda, looking up for a moment from his lesson-book. "'I hope he is not, please the Lord,' I answered, but in a despondent tone. 
Yet there he does come, I believe, all the same. Not he. Why, that is a gentleman, said Woloda, likewise looking out of the window. Let us wait till half-past two, and then ask St. Jerome if we may put away our books. Yes, and wish them au revoir, I added, stretching my arms, with the book clasped in my hands over my head. Having hitherto idled away my time, I now opened the book at the place where the lesson was to begin, and started to learn it. It was long and difficult, and moreover I was in the mood when one's thoughts refused to be arrested by anything at all. Consequently I made no progress. After our last lesson in history, which always seemed to me a peculiarly arduous and wearisome subject, the history-master had complained to St. Jerome of me because only two good marks stood to my credit in the register, a very small total. St. Jerome had then told me that if I failed to gain less than three marks at the next lesson I should be severely punished. The next lesson was now imminent, and I confess that I felt a little nervous. So absorbed, however, did I become in my reading, that the sound of galoshes being taken off in the ante-room came upon me almost as a shock. I had just time to look up when there appeared in the doorway the servile and to me very disgusting face and form of the master, clad in a blue frock-coat with brass buttons. Slowly he set down his hat and books and adjusted the folds of his coat, as though such a thing were necessary, and seated himself in his place. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, rubbing his hands, "'let us first of all repeat the general contents of the last lesson, after which I will proceed to narrate the succeeding events of the Middle Ages.' This meant, say over the last lesson. While Woloda was answering the master with the entire ease and confidence which come of knowing a subject well, I went aimlessly out onto the landing, and since I was not allowed to go downstairs, what more natural than that I should involuntarily turn towards the alcove on the landing? Yet before I had time to establish myself in my usual coin of vantage behind the door, I found myself pounced upon by Mimi, always the cause of my misfortunes. "'You here?' she said, looking severely, first at myself and then at the maidservant's door, and then at myself again. I felt thoroughly guilty, firstly because I was not in the schoolroom, and secondly because I was in a forbidden place. So I remained silent, and, dropping my head, assumed a touching expression of contrition. "'Indeed, this is too bad,' Mimi went on. "'What are you doing here?' Still I said nothing. "'Well, it shall not rest where it is,' she added, tapping the banister with her yellow fingers. "'I shall inform the Countess.' It was five minutes to three when I re-entered the schoolroom. The master, as though oblivious of my presence or absence, was explaining the new lesson to Woloda. When he had finished doing this, and had put his books together, while Woloda went into the other room to fetch his ticket, the comforting idea occurred to me that perhaps the whole thing was over now, and that the master had forgotten me. But suddenly he turned in my direction, with a malicious smile, and said as he rubbed his hands anew, "'I hope you have learnt your lesson?' "'Yes,' I replied. "'Would you be so kind, then, as to tell me something about St. Louis's crusade?' he went on, balancing himself on his chair, and looking gravely at his feet. "'Firstly, tell me something about the reasons which induced the French king to assume the cross.' Here he raised his eyebrows and pointed to the inkstand. "'Then explain to me the general characteristics of the crusade.' Here he made a sweeping gesture with his hand, as though to seize hold of something with it. "'And lastly, expound to me the influence of this crusade upon the European states in general. 
drawing the copy-books to the left side of the table, and upon the French state in particular, drawing one of them to the right and inclining his head in the same direction. I swallowed a few times, coughed, bent forward, and was silent. Then taking a pen from the table I began to pick it to pieces, yet still said nothing. "'Allow me the pen. I shall want it,' said the master. "'Well?' Louis the er, saint was was a very good and wise king what king he took it into his head to go to jerusalem and handed over the reins of government to his mother what was her name but but lanka what belanka i laughed in a rather forced smile well is that all you know he asked again smiling I had nothing to lose now, so I began chattering the first thing that came into my head. The master remained silent as he gathered together the remains of the pen which I had left strewn about the table, looked gravely past my ear at the wall, and repeated from time to time, "'Very well, very well,' though I was conscious that I knew nothing whatever and was expressing myself all wrong. I felt much hurt at the fact that he never either corrected or interrupted me. What made him think of going to Jerusalem?" he asked at last, repeating some words of my own. "'Because—because—that is to say—my confusion was complete, and I relapsed into silence. I felt that, even if this disgusting history-master were to go on putting questions to me and gazing inquiringly into my face for a year, I should never be able to enunciate another syllable. After staring at me for some three minutes, he suddenly assumed a mournful cast of countenance, and said in an agitated voice to Woloda, who was just re-entering the room, "'Allow me the register. I will write my remarks.' He opened the book thoughtfully, and in his fine calligraphy marked five for Woloda for diligence and the same for good behaviour. Then resting his pen on the line where my report was to go, he looked at me and reflected. Suddenly his hand made a decisive movement and, behold, against my name stood a clearly marked one, with a full stop after it. Another movement, and in the behaviour column there stood another one, and another full stop. Quietly closing the book, the master then rose and moved towards the door, as though unconscious of my look of entreaty, despair, and reproach. "'Michael Levionich,' I said. "'No,' he replied, as though knowing beforehand what I was about to say. It is impossible for you to learn in that way. I am not going to earn my money for nothing." He put on his galoshes and cloak, and then slowly tied a scarf about his neck. To think that he could care about such trifles after what had just happened to me! To him it was all a mere stroke of the pen, but to me it meant the direst misfortune. "'Is the lesson over?' asked St. Jerome, entering. "'Yes.' "'And was the master pleased with you?' "'Yes.' "'How many marks did he give you?' five and to nicholas i was silent i think four said woloda his idea was to save me for at least to-day if punishment there must be it need not be awarded while we had guests voyons monsieur st jerome was forever saying voyons faites votre toilette et descendons chapter twelve the key we had hardly descended and greeted our guests when luncheon was announced. Papa was in the highest of spirits, since for some time past he had been winning. He had presented Lubotshka with a silver tea-service, and suddenly remembered after luncheon that he had forgotten a box of bonbons, which she was to have too. 
Why send a servant for it? You had better go, Coco," he said to me jestingly. The keys are in the tray on the table, you know. Take them, and with the largest one open the second drawer on the right. There you will find the box of bonbons. Bring it here. Shall I get you some cigars as well?" I said, knowing that he always smoked after luncheon. Yes, do. But don't touch anything else. I found the keys, and was about to carry out my orders, when I was seized with a desire to know what the smallest of the keys on the bunch belonged to. On the table I saw, among many other things, a padlocked portfolio, and at once felt curious to see if that was what the key fitted. My experiment was crowned with success. The portfolio opened, and disclosed a number of papers. Curiosity so strongly urged me also to ascertain what those papers contained, that the voice of conscience was stilled, and I began to read their contents. My childish feeling of unlimited respect for my elders, especially for papa, was so strong within me that my intellect involuntarily refused to draw any conclusions from what I had seen. I felt that papa was living in a sphere completely apart from, incomprehensible by, and unattainable for me, as well as one that was in every way excellent, and that any attempt on my part to criticize the secrets of his life would constitute something like sacrilege. For this reason the discovery which I made from papa's portfolio left no clear impression upon my mind, but only a dim consciousness that I had done wrong. I felt ashamed and confused. The feeling made me eager to shut the portfolio again as quickly as possible, but it seemed as though on this unlucky day I was destined to experience every possible kind of adversity. I put the key back into the padlock and turned it round, but not in the right direction. Thinking that the portfolio was now locked, I pulled at the key and—oh, horror! found my hand come away with only the top half of the key in it. In vain did I try to put the two halves together and to extract the portion that was sticking in the padlock. At last I had to resign myself to the dreadful thought that I had committed a new crime, one which would be discovered to-day as soon as ever Papa returned to his study. First of all, Mimi's accusation on the staircase, and then that one mark, and then this key. Nothing worse could happen now. This very evening I should be assailed successively by Grandmamma, because of Mimi's denunciation, by St. Jerome, because of the solitary mark, and by Papa, because of the matter of this key. Yes, all in one evening. "'What on earth is to become of me? What have I done?' I exclaimed, as I paced the soft carpet. "'Well,' I went on with sudden determination, "'what must come, must. That's all.' And taking up the bonbons and the cigars, I ran back to the other part of the house. The fatalistic formula with which I had concluded, and which was one that I often heard Nicola utter during my childhood, always produced in me, at the more difficult crises of my life, a momentarily soothing beneficial effect. Consequently, when I re-entered the drawing-room, I was in a rather excited, unnatural mood, yet one that was perfectly cheerful. End of section 3 Recording by Bill Borst